Hi everyone! Welcome to the ninth and final session of Dear Mr. Potter. What a long, strange trip it has been. We've gone all the way to Hogwarts and all the way home again, and today we're going to conclude by talking just a little about the movie adaptation, about adaptations in general, and then fielding some q and I have some very interesting emails lined up that I will address today, but if you have thoughts, you, the live audience, if you have questions that you would like me to answer, then you can reach me either in the chat window on the YouTube page, where you're presumably watching this right now, or by finding me on Twitter using the hashtag SWDMP, SWDUMP, and I'll see those questions and answer those too. Hi, everyone. Hi to Beth and to McGigglecutie and to Allison, who is... I don't even know what time it is where Allison is right now, but this is a real uh, dedication. This is a real devotion right here. We've got Robbie. We've got Kay with us. We've got everyone here. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. It's so much fun to have these rare and unusual Sunday afternoon from where I am in the world, Sunday afternoon sessions. I have here just a little coffee to sustain me this time, mm. which lacks a certain something. I'm more accustomed to my whiskey for uh, live sessions, but the coffee will at least keep me alert over the course of the next uh, 90 minutes or so, I should say. Before we get into our discussion of Dear Mr. Potter, a quick reminder that we have an upcoming seminar uh, in just a few short weeks, in want of a wife, a Pride and Prejudice seminar will begin. That's June 19th, 2015. There will be more information posted to storywonk.com in just the next few days. We're going to take something like eight weeks, seven or eight weeks, I think, to go through in want of a wife. We're also, uh, in an unrelated uh, endeavor, going to be producing commentary tracks and discussions relating to the 1995 British BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, and I think probably also at least one episode dedicated to the Kira Knightley adaptation, and at least one episode dedicated to the recent YouTube adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, uh, uh, the Lizzie Potter Diaries. The Lizzie Potter Diaries? What am I even talking about? This is what happens when I try to cunningly rearrange my windows while I'm showing you guys a slide. I'm doing all this logistical stuff in the background, and I manage to distract myself. The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, of course, is what I meant. So that will begin on June the 19th. I cannot wait. It is going to be a lot of fun to talk about Pride and Prejudice. I've been reading it again just over the last few days, and uh, it's just been a delight. It's just a delight. The precision with which Austen writes... It just leaves me breathless. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. So that will start in just a few weeks, but today we turn our attention to Harry Potter. We turn our attention in particular to the adaptation directed by Christopher Columbus, and an adaptation which is clearly problematic in a number of ways. There are clear problems with this story. Now, it is not my intent today to tell you that you shouldn't enjoy the Harry Potter movie. Quite the contrary, in fact. I find it delightful. I watched it again just this morning. And I find it thoroughly enjoyable. I find it thoroughly enjoyable, though, because I'm so familiar with the source material. And that is a problem for an adaptation. An adaptation should exemplify the virtues that we seek in the story. It should filter those virtues through the strengths of its own medium. It should be, I can put it no more bluntly than this, a story complete and whole unto itself. And by that measure... The first Harry Potter movie fails. The second Harry Potter movie also kind of fails. They get it right by the time we reach Prisoner of Azkaban, and I think that the movies become more of their own texts as we move forward through the series. There are delightful things in the first film. I think all of the performances are, are great. And how lucky were they with the casting? 
It's, it's amazing that they managed to find three children, three children so young, so untested, who bring such warmth and charisma to the screen. I think the performances across the board from all of the children, from all of the adults, are just outstanding. The production design is breathtaking. The score is a remarkable thing, though I think you could argue that perhaps the score is a little too intrusive at times. Certainly its orchestration, its arrangement is beautiful. Even the special effect sequences, the CGI sequences in particular, hold up really rather well for a film of its age. Unfortunately, it falters at the most basic level. It falters because it is not a strong adaptation. It is not a story unto itself. Adapting a story from one medium to another, any story from one medium to another, is always a difficult challenge. It is done well so rarely that we have arrived at an innate cultural bias against adaptation. How many times have you heard people take against the movie version of something, the TV version of something, even without seeing it? We assume inherently, innately, that the original form of a story must be better. We say, I'll read the book before I see the movie, or I'll see the movie before I see the TV show that spins out from it. We assume that originality has some innate virtue, and I genuinely think that that is not the case. I think the reason that we are so skeptical of adaptation is that adaptation is so often <sighs> just weak storytelling. It results in weak storytelling. And that's certainly the case here. The most important thing about any adapted work is that the story should be complete. It should tell its story. It should leverage the strengths of that native medium to draw the viewer or the reader in. It should communicate its narrative intent clearly, powerfully, strongly, vibrantly. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone fails to do that pretty much on every narrative level. Events are depicted as they are in the book with little or no understanding as to the unique strengths and the weaknesses of this visual medium. When a plot point, and this is perhaps the most egregious criticism of the movie, when a plot point or detail or image can't be depicted on screen, we'll just skip over it with no attempt to compensate for its absence. As a film, it is only comprehensible from a narrative perspective if you have a full understanding of the book. The first time I was ever exposed to Harry Potter was through this movie. And for the longest while, I thought that Harry Potter was incredibly weak. I thought that it was juvenile storytelling at its worst. I thought that it was chaotic and unstructured and ill-disciplined because of this film. And none of that is true. None of that is true. The film itself even makes a certain amount of narrative sense if you come armed with the knowledge of the book. Unfortunately, without that knowledge, it is roundly incomprehensible. One of the biggest problems, one of the biggest challenges that it faces is representing interiority on the screen. This is always a problem with film. One of the reasons that we like novels, one of the reasons that we turn to books for a full and rich exploration of character is that books give us a great and, and long-term insight into a character's perspective, their motivations, their goals, their emotional landscape. It's very difficult to do that on the screen because you are always aware of the distance between you and the protagonist. Harry Potter thrives, particularly in its first act, on giving us an insight into the quiet, mundane torment of this little boy. This little boy who finds himself without family, without a place in the world, without 
respect, without friends, you know, without all of the things, all of that sense of community that he comes to during his time at Hogwarts. But without having that interiority, without having that profound understanding of this character, we are alienated. We are reduced, at least, to witnesses. It's very difficult to empathize with Harry in anything other than an abstract way. And abstract empathy is never going to be as powerful as specific, detailed, person-to-person engagement. We'll talk about the film specifically in just a few moments. We'll actually move through at least the first act in some detail so that I can highlight exactly where it falters in this regard. But compare the opening of the book where we get this this insight into what drives Vernon Dursley. Then we have our brief scene with Dumbledore, with McGonagall, with Hagrid delivering Harry to the doorstep of number four, Privet Drive. Then we move into Harry's POV at the beginning of that chapter, that, that notable, that beautiful uh, sequence of transition where we sweep, the, the literary camera sweeps through the living room and we arrive in Harry's POV and we stay there for much of the book. Here, we don't get a profound and personal understanding of the mechanics of this torment. We don't get a sense, really, of the loneliness that underpins it, the loneliness that drives Harry. We get to understand these characters in the book in a meaningful way, all of these characters in a meaningful way, and that drives the story forward. Here we're left with the skeleton of the structure, and we move through it so quickly that it's easy to be left behind. And what happens then is that you simply associate yourself with Harry because his name is in the title of the film. There's no personal connection there. Yeah. All right. Let's, um... Yeah. (laughs) Wow, I'm sitting here already. All right, all right. Okay, everything seems to be working. Everyone seems to be happy. Everyone seems to be here. That is all good. All right. Yeah, this is... There were a few comments here about about the score, so let me address this right up front. I love the music to Harry Potter. Harry Potter actually has one of the... I'm not not a terribly... um, I'm not terribly given to soundtracks in general. I don't spend a lot of my time listening to official soundtracks, particularly when it's, it's, you know, handcrafted, you know, orchestral arrangements like this. Um... But this music is amazing. That single theme, you know, the theme of Harry Potter, is is a wonderful thing. Um, and it is used beautifully. It is, I think, a little heavy-handed in the first movie. But even that can easily be forgiven. It, it's a little intrusive. It is, perhaps, from a strictly technical point of view, the part of the film that works the least well for me. But that's, you know, damning it with, with <laughs> very faint criticism indeed. That is grading on the highest of curves. Um, it really is very good. Yeah. Ear Lamp says, I don't know. I understood it, but I was eight, so maybe I filled in a lot of the blanks. This is one of the things that, um, this is one of the things I think that, that can lead to a defense of the book. Or, uh, excuse me, that can lead to a defense of the movie in ter- uh, as seen through the prism of the book. When I describe the plot as incomprehensible, I'm not talking about from an archetypal standpoint. If you look at this in its broadest movements, then yeah, it's comprehensible. It's the story of a boy whose name is in the title, who finds out that he has powers, who can can make friends at this wizard school, who makes enemies at this wizard school, who undertakes a series of adventures and achieves ultimately his goal. The problem is that that interpretation gives very little of 
the rich characterization that we get in the book. You know, we spent the last eight weeks talking about this novel, and this is not a long novel because there's so much detail in there, because there's so much rich thematic orchestration in the text of the book. And while you can kind of bounce from event to event to event, as we do in the course of this this movie, you are lacking a certain depth, a certain texture in your understanding of these characters. The characters themselves, because of their reactive natures, because they are, are forced from event to event to event, they don't get quite the same depth of treatment, quite the same development as we move through the book. Let's get into some specifics here. <laughs> yes, uh, Sam Just on Twitter says, it's funny that the shortest book was the worst adaptation. Yes, isn't it? Um, the least the least confident adaptation, too. And I can understand why, by the way. This is not to damn Christopher Columbus, um, not to deny him any measure of, of directorial talent. I can understand that undertaking this movie was a daunting, daunting task. And I think that there would have been a great pressure on him to be as faithful as possible to the books, which, if there's a criticism of this movie, that is it. It is simply too faithful and and too unwilling to compensate for its own enforced deviations. When it has to change something, it will just leave a space. We'll talk about Norbert uh, much later in the story. But um, let's get into some specifics as we move through here. So we begin on Privet Drive, which I think is a smart decision. We don't start with Vernon Dursley because we're not going to get, by virtue of the medium, we're not going to get that interiority. We're not going to understand what it is that drives Vernon Dursley as we, well, I was going to say, as we get in the book. We don't entirely get it in the book, but we get a vague sense of at least what is important to him. In the movie, though, we get none of that. We open on Privet Drive, smart decision, but we immediately illustrate the chief problem here, a chief misunderstanding in theme and in tone, because we open on a privet drive that looks magical, that looks mystical. We have Dumbledore moving forward. Everything is hazy. It is shot through with ethereal light. We have Dumbledore take out his put-outer and extinguish the lights, which is a great magical effect, but it fails to understand that the reason this sequence is so important in the book, that it is so powerful, is that Dumbledore should be out of place and he isn't. This should be the most mundane part of the book. Privet Drive is a bastion of mundanity. It is the mugglest. But here we shoot the opening like it's a fantasy story, like it's ethereal, like it's otherworldly. And that's, I mean, beautiful. From a production standpoint, it's gorgeously done. There's no arguing that. The, the special effects sequences are lovely with perhaps one exception, the, the McGonagall transformation sequences, I don't think work at either point in, in the movie. Um, but Dumbledore's presence there is striking. It's a visually powerful image, but it betrays a misunderstanding of the essential nature of the text. This should have been the most mundane world, and Dumbledore should have looked so out of place. That's important because that is setting the thematic landscape that we're going to explore through the rest of the book. If we can't have our interiority from Vernon Dursley, if we can't have his take on the mundane world, then we should at least see it. And that, of course, is the great power. While cinema prevents you from accessing that kind of interiority, from genuinely seeing the world through another character's eyes and, and inhabiting their experience fully, 
what the screen gives you that the book doesn't is a way of literally depicting something of actually seeing it and experiencing it that way. So you experience at a remove, but you experience in a much more powerful and direct and directed way. Let me catch up here on what you're all thinking. <laughs> Nonoff says on uh, in the YouTube chat, isn't it true that movies are too short to show the depth of the typical novel? That I think is is part of the, that is part of our kind of, our, our, our palette of questions. Uh, for this seminar session. Can any movie depict the events of this book respectfully, fully, accurately? And I think that the answer is yes, but you do it not by literally transcribing the events of the book. You instead have to arrive at their core. You take the, the, the seed of that idea and you represent that as best you can using the strengths of your medium. And there are parts, I think, there are parts, I think, of this movie which do work, they either work in concert with the book very nicely. I'm thinking in particular of the Mirror of Erisad. Um, not so much its use in the final showdown, but when Harry finds it, seeing Harry's parents, seeing his response to it, I find that enormously powerful. I think that there is a mistake. I think that there is another misunderstanding there that we see only Harry's parents and not his extended family, not the extended community, because community is what Harry is looking for. A sense of belonging is what Harry is looking for, I think, even more than a direct relationship with his parents. But I find that to be enormously powerful, enormously functional. Luckily, that is a very visual part of the book, so its representation on screen works quite well. Could you have done a version of this story on screen that really communicated the same tonal and thematic registers? Could you have, have written a version of this film that impressed, that lasted, that endured as fully as the book does? I think you could. I think you could, but you have to move away from, from the, the transliteration of the book to the screen. We'll see. What do you guys think? Do you think there's a way of doing it? <laughs> Oh, this is interesting. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Lance, 1973, here in the YouTube chat says, you need clarification. I wonder if this is a reference to uh, our use of the word clarification to describe the voiceovers in the TV show Outlander. Voiceover is absolutely one of the mechanisms that filmmakers use to give us that kind of interiority. That is one of the reasons that voiceover is so common, that it is so effective. There's a reason that people use it. Many people use it poorly. Many people use it to give us an insight into interiority that forces us to, to recast our understanding. It isn't, it, it's expository rather than revelatory, I guess, you know. You have voiceover to compensate for the weaknesses. You use voiceover only when you cannot show the story beats more naturalistically on screen, or sometimes, you know, through an aesthetic choice. We have just uh, started a, uh, we have just started a new podcast series in which we're offering commentary tracks for every episode of the neo-noir series Veronica Mars. And Veronica Mars is a TV show that wields voiceover with great purpose, with great intent, and does so in a manner that is entirely befitting the, the aesthetic reference that it chooses you know, noir movies of the, the 40s and 50s. So there's a way of using voiceover. There's a way of using insight. There's a way of using framing. There's a way of using the actual, you know, dream sequence cutaway depiction of events or or the, the 
experiential kind of reflection of those events on screen. You can do things that are part of a cinematic grammar that force you not simply to depict, or again, <laughs> force is powerful language, that allow you to not simply depict the beat that is occurring, but give a more kind of impressionistic view of that event. So yes, you can do that. You absolutely can. Yeah. Let me catch up here too. So many smart things being said here on Twitter, being said in the YouTube chat. Sam says, isn't VO usually lazy writing? Yes, usually it is. It is not inherently the case that VO is always lazy writing. It depends what its purpose is. Um, if you're interested in, you know, our discussions of VO, then by all means go and listen to the Scott and the Sansonac available over, over at storywonk.com in which we discuss voiceover a lot, uh, through, as seen through the prism of Outlander. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, you know, I just want to emphasize here, absolutely emphasize that you are not wrong for enjoying this movie. One of the simplest and yet most challenging notions that you have to settle <laughs> within yourself when you start to think about stories critically, when you start to exercise your analytical tools uh, and look at the narratives that you love, the first thing you have to be able to do is disambiguate this question of liking something and its quality. You have to be able to say, this is not good, or this is problematic, or this is imperfect, while also simultaneously saying, I love this. This makes me happy. This is fun. This is enjoyable. This is rewarding. It is entirely possible for something to be wildly imperfect, wildly flawed, and yet still beloved. Likewise, it is entirely possible for something to be perfect, for something to be, well, okay, perfect's a loaded word, but for something to be technically respectable, you know, technically crafted and constructed beautifully, but not enjoyable. It's entirely possible for there to be something that is technically impressive to you, but which you do not like. So you have to be able to disambiguate those two questions. And I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that they shouldn't like Harry Potter and the, the Philosopher's Stone. Of course you should. It is wildly engaging, particularly for those of us who, who have this deep and abiding love for the source material itself. Yeah. All right. All right, let's jump in here. Oh, Kay asks, whose voice would have been used in Harry Potter? I mean, one may have been able to frame the events, considering where we begin and where we end, and as we know, beginnings and endings are so vital in stories, um, and particularly elusively so in Harry Potter. Um, considering where we begin and we end, we could have framed the narrative from the perspective of Hagrid, or from Dumbledore. Either one of those could have given us a an opening and a closing voiceover. I think that frames what we're supposed to take from the story. The most intuitive answer, of course, would be to give us voiceover from Harry himself. But to do so would have forced such profound deviation that we would have been better off simply reframing the events so that we didn't need voiceover in the first place. And this is oftentimes the case with voiceover, particularly voiceover used in adaptation. If you're going to go to the lengths of having your characters address the audience directly, there's almost certainly a better way of doing that that will be less intrusive, less destructive to the actual experience of enjoying the story. And and you, you can probably avoid the use of voiceover with you know, better and clever writing. All right, let us return here. Um, 
<laughs> I'm going to miss talking about Harry Potter with you guys. I, I will say right off the bat, I know that I've said this before, but I will, I will uh, reiterate that we will address the Chamber of Secrets in full probably next spring. Um, it's going to be very difficult to make the time before then. We are going to look at Pride and Prejudice. We're going to look at some other works uh, through the end of this year. But yes, we will do Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets sometime after we do the second uh, Outlander book, Dragonfly in Amber. It'll be a part of the vote. You know, stay tuned to storywonk.com is what I'm saying. So we have a hard cut to Harry in the cupboard under the stairs. And we actually managed to communicate, I think, the cruel mundanity of life with the Dursleys rather well, though because of the brevity of these sequences and because of the intensity with which they are delivered, we teeter ever closer to the notion of grotesquery. You know, we are, we are almost on the brink of the Dursleys becoming cartoon characters. Um, and we face that possibility within the span of the book too, of course. And I know that for some of you, the Dursleys have long since crossed that threshold. That ship has long since sailed and the Dursleys are simply grotesque caricatures of, of, uh, real human beings. Um, I can completely understand how you would get there if that is how you feel. Um, but for me, they managed to hold on just by their fingernails uh, through the movie. Had it been any longer, had the sequence been any longer, and had it still been cut with the same rapidity, then I think it would have faltered. But they managed to just just thread that needle um, for me. Um, yes. <laughs> so we move so quickly through this. We get this one brief shot of Harry in his cupboard, one brief sequence in the kitchen and the dining room, one brief beat in the driveway, and then we are at the reptile house. We are at the reptile house six minutes into this movie. And that shows, and given how long we spend establishing Privet Drive, you know, we take more time with Dumbledore and his put-outer than we do with Harry and Vernon and, and the other Dursleys. So we're moving very quickly, and there's no actual framing here. We're not getting any of this interiority, any of this insight. We don't really have a sense of who Harry is or what he's going through other than the mechanics that we can actually see. We still don't, I feel at this point, have a strong sense that Harry is lonely. That this loneliness that drives this character, that fuels so much of his emotional engagements throughout the book, is present at all. He just seems to be bombarded and bullied and barricaded. You know, he is swamped by the powerful personalities in his house and their lack of regard for him, but we don't get a sense, I think, of that underlying vulnerability. And if you have heard me talk at all about stories in the past, then you know exactly how important that vulnerability is. Throughout the first arc of the book, we are really leaning hard on the fact that Harry Potter's name is in the title of the film. Otherwise, I'm not sure how, how directly and how profoundly we would emotionally connect with this young boy. By the time we get to the letters sequence, and again, great production values, a ton of visual creativity here, uh, a beautifully produced sequence. By the time we get to the letters sequence, I don't think that we have a strong enough sense of Dursley's motivations and his insecurity, that, that vital primal insecurity. At the end of the sequence, with the entire house filling with letters and Vernon wrestling with Harry in the hallway, Dudley is given his line from the book. Dudley gets his line, Daddy's gone mad, hasn't he? Box checked. The tick is down, you know, we don't give any thought to what that line means. And 
I was about to say that within the context of the book, it actually makes sense. Within the context of the book, it makes sense within the context of Dudley. <laughs> we understand, I think, that from Dudley's POV, he would he would think that his father has indeed gone mad. That that works. But in the context of the movie, it's outright bizarre. No one can look at, at Vernon Dursley wrestling with Harry as he is pelted and besieged by letters from all sides and think he's gone mad. I mean, there's clearly something happening. This is much more than his excessive response to the letters that we get from the uh, that we get from the book, of course. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> yes, we're getting some speculation about what. Uh, yeah, we're getting some speculation, too, about what Dumbledore knows. Yes, that's true. I did say that Dumbledore could could be given the, the opening VO. But yes, that would be enormously problematic because you would really run the risk of, of outright lying to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and McGigglecute, he says on, on Twitter, yes, at least the snake does not call Harry amigo. Yes, I, was, I do prefer the thanks. That works better for me, um, I have to say. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and we're getting a lot of we're getting a lot of feedback about the Dursleys being caricatured, being uh being a little a little too much, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um let's see where we are here. Yeah, so we have this line about Daddy's gone mad, hasn't he? Which is, you know, seems to be somewhat unjustified since Vernon is reacting to his house being filled up with letters. And of course, we don't get that slow burn. In the book, it takes a week to get to this point where he is being is being so fully besieged. It's a slow build, and it's a slow build that builds off of the foundation we're given at the beginning of the first chapter, when we're introduced to the notion that Vernon Dursley prizes above all other things his own mundanity. He prides himself on being the mugglest muggle. So we cut ahead to Hagrid's arrival uh, at the hut on the rock in the sea, where we see another example. This is another example of, of what I was talking about earlier, where we are forced to cut and edit and move things around. And we do that, but we do it without any effort to understand what is actually taking place on screen. And still further, no effort at all to understand the underlying themes that are at play. Go and watch. I, I, I should actually have taken a clip of this so that we could all watch it together. Though I'm sure that would involve the, the breaking of, of numerous international copyright laws, so I'm glad that I didn't. But uh, go and look at that scene when Hagrid shows up at the hut on the rock. And forget everything you know about the book. Imagine what could possibly motivate Hagrid to say the lines that he says in the order that he says them. So he sits down. He explains that he is the keeper of the keys at Hogwarts and says to Harry, you know all about Hogwarts, of course, and is surprised that Harry doesn't know all about Hogwarts. Then he asks Harry if he never wondered where his mother and father learned it all, and Harry says, learned all what? And then Hagrid leans forward and gives the ominous, the famous line, you're a wizard, Harry. What is the cognitive sequence that takes you through those three lines? To say, of course, you know all about Hogwarts. And then, well, didn't you wonder where your mother and father learned it all? And then, you're a wizard. Particularly because you're a wizard is not an actual response to the thing that Harry said. There is a giant cognitive leap in there if we are to believe that this Hagrid, this version of Hagrid, is a real 
thinking human being. But of course he's not. Within this sequence, he's only saying the things that come from the book. We're not paying enough respect, we're not paying sufficient respect to the underlying characterization that's taking place here. Hagrid being outraged that Harry doesn't know anything about his family history, anything about Hogwarts at all, he doesn't even know that being a wizard is a thing that, that is possible in the world. Hagrid's outrage tells us so much, and not just about Hagrid, though it does. It tells us about the Dursleys. It tells us about the world in which we find ourselves. It tells us about Harry's precarious, fragile position. And we begin to understand that his loneliness, at least within the pages of the book where we can see his loneliness evident, we begin to understand that his loneliness isn't just a product of these vile people. It's a product of being cut off from his own essential nature, his own community, in a very meaningful and, and, and important way. So we go onward. Oh, I will also say, I'm not a big fan of Hagrid lighting the fire with his umbrella. Just, I like the, the, the book sequence of, of Hagrid, you know, leaning down over it and the magic being almost ambiguous at that point. That is a personal preference thing. That is not actually a valid criticism of what they choose to do in the, in the movie. It's just a personal preference point there. Yeah. Um, so we go onward. We go through the Leaky Cauldron to Diagon Alley to Gringotts. Don't worry, I'm not going to do every single beat of the movie. Uh, we go all the way out to Ollivanders. And I like here the decision to have Hagrid go off to buy the owl when Harry goes into Ollivanders. Though we lose something very important from the book, which is the idea that Ollivanders is to Diagon Alley as Diagon Alley is to the rest of London. You know, We looked at these series of transitional stages when we were going through the book. The Forbidden Forest is to Hogwarts as Hogwarts is to the Muggle realm. Ollivanders exists in another kind of space. It is as far from Diagon Alley as Diagon Alley is from the 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 uh, fast food restaurant where Harry and Hagrid eat before Harry goes home. So I like the beat of Harry going in by himself, and I do enjoy the sequence, but it's losing something that is not simply aesthetic. It's not simply a, a choice. It's not simply a production decision to give this place a different atmosphere. It's fundamentally misunderstanding that this book is about a tier of, or a series of tiers, I guess, of, of, of fantastical realities that we're going to continue to move from one to the other and back again throughout the course of the book. So speaking of moving from, <laughs> speaking of moving from one reality to another, this is perhaps the, the cut that has the biggest problem for me. The problem here is that we move directly from Diagon Alley to King's Cross, to the Hogwarts Express. We don't have that vital beat of Harry returning home and, and spending the rest of his summer with the Dursleys. We're moving on far too quickly. And I praised the book when we were looking at this part of, of the original text. We were, we were, <laughs> I presume to speak for all of us, I was impressed at Rowling's commitment to embodying both sides of Harry's experience of having him realize his wizardly potential while still keeping his feet planted in the Muggle realm. And I specifically praised at that point, while forgetting, in all honesty, while completely forgetting that the movie eluded over this section, 
I praised this commitment to keeping Harry connected to the Dursleys, keeping him connected to the real world. That is vitally important to our understanding of who Harry is and who he will become both in this book and in future books. Here we skip right over it. And it is like that lightning bolt out of the blue. It is like the, the stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. Harry has been taken. He has been removed from his context, from his place, and cast into another world entirely. And even that would be a thing that you could do. That would be a valid approach if it was done with purpose. It feels so clearly here that it is done just because we need to get things moving. We need to cut. We need to just chop this part of the book out and just keep going. But as I said before, and as we'll see again, we excise the part of the book that is important, that speaks to theme, and we don't, and this is the cardinal sin, replace it with anything. Instead, we just have Harry suddenly appearing in King's Cross. He looks at his ticket for a good long time, long enough to give Hagrid time to leave, and that's it. There's no, there's no compensatory narrative. There's nothing there to cover up that, that clean cut in the process of events. Yeah. Yeah. Liz says on Twitter, it's so exciting to see Diagon Alley, and the score takes a lovely upswing in tempo. I do adore Diagon Alley. I adore the Leaky Cauldron, too, actually. It is a great sequence, and uh, yeah. I love that they managed to bring out all of Hagrid's... Ah, oh, what is the word that I'm looking for? <laughs> I, I almost want to say pomposity, but it's pomposity of a very humble... It's the pomposity of a, a, a servant who serves to the very limits of his ability. He has a real pride in his work. When he says to the, uh, to the barman in the Leaky Cauldron, Oh, not today, Tom. Hogwarts business. It's a great moment. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to, there's, there's not actually that much more that I want to discuss. Ah, uh, with regard to the movie, let me catch up with the YouTube chat here. Yes, yes, yes. Francis asks, in the first seminar, you mentioned the question of who is the story being told to and by whom? Yes, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we focused a little in the last seminar about what story this is. Um... And we came to the conclusion that I think, and, I, you know, the feedback that I've seen this week certainly seems to to support the notion that, that we're all fairly happy with this reading, is that there's two stories happening here. There is the, the coming-of-age boarding school adventure story that occasionally trespasses into this darker, more adult, more dangerous story, the Voldemort story, if you like. Um, and I'm comfortable with that as an explanation of the structure of the story, and certainly the 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 tone of the story, because to try to synthesize those two, to try and draw those two together and unite them as part of a single narrative is enormously problematic, because then you have people acting wildly out of character. You have people behaving as though trivial things are vitally important and vice versa. So we have to accept that there are two realities at work here, that there are two kinds of stories happening, and that the presence of one of those narratives redefines Harry's take on his experience and his his adventures. Um, but as to what that does to, to the notion of who is telling this story, that is an interesting, an interesting question. And if anything, I think the movie actually has an easier time of that. By virtue of the fact that we are at one remove, this could easily be, this is the story of Harry Potter, right? The movie version 
This is the tale that is told to wizarding children all over the country for years to come after this. This is the first chapter of The Boy Who Lived. Um, and that's much harder because, of course, in the book, we have such a strong insight into Harry's personal experience, his personal struggle, this, this huge amount of turmoil that he goes through. And we have to keep these two stories in suspension the whole time. So it can only be a part of a narrative that encompasses the Voldemort storyline too, right? Because you can't, <laughs> the first Harry Potter book cannot be just the boarding school adventure because that fails to account for the much darker parts of the story. Ollivanders, the Forbidden Forest, and yes, of course, the final showdown with Voldemort. So this has to be a story that is told from the point of view of someone who has experienced the entire series. Does that make sense? If if it is being told by someone in the story to someone in the story, then it has to be someone who has full knowledge of everything that the story is going to do. The huge shifts in, in scale and intensity and in drama and in, in consequence that we're going to see over the entire run of the Harry Potter series. So who is it? I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting one. I mean, it still has the notion of the children's tales, so I guess, were I to speculate wildly, I would say that perhaps this is the story that, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to spoil a reveal for a subsequent book, I guess. This is the story that one of Harry's peers, one of his companions, may well tell their children someday, you know? There's a version of this that, that you could read as being exactly that. And that makes sense. I think that it is intended for a, for a childlike audience, at least in part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Janine says, my first instinct is to think of this as Dumbles telling Harry all the details one day when he is old enough. Oh, if we're reframing it from... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting... That's a really interesting perspective. It could well be that we're seeing a kind of a non-literal recitation of the story. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm still... Um, I have a tendency whenever I think about questions like this to go to the, the, the Tolkienian version of this account, which is that the book that you are holding is the actual book that is, is relating the story to one of the characters that exists within this fictional frame. This is the Hobbit version of this story, where, where Bilbo sits down and writes the story. Is it possible that Dumbledore could sit down and write this story well dumbledore is problematic as as a pov character or as a a kind of higher scale protagonist simply because his behavior in this first book is in poor accord with the information that we know he possesses you know as we said um my goodness last week just last week as we said last week we were talking about the uh the final moments of the story and, and dumbledore giving harry the account of what happened during his confrontation with voldemort and he gives in particular this account of of love that love protected harry from from voldemort's depredations and allowed him to burn quirrell or i guess uh petrify and 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 shatter quirrell in the movie um and even as we're reading that, of course, we discuss the notion that that, that is incomplete. It's fine. G cool. Good. Awesome work, Dumbledore, for giving Harry that account. Dumbledore never mentions Harry's horrifying headaches, which we can see very clearly throughout the book are always tied to the influence of Voldemort. 
So Dumbledore is giving an, an imperfect account even there and then. And that imperfect account will be retconned in the future. We will go back and we will, we will, we will massage some of these details. We will, we will infer certain things about who knew what and when and the exact mechanics of how things work. We'll talk about those uh, details as we get to future books. Dumbledore would be problematic. Hagrid lacks a certain, um, a certain eloquence, I think, um, and certainly wouldn't reframe the story so imperfectly. So I don't know. If if I had to guess, if I had to to, you know, really stick a pin in it and say who is responsible for this story being told in exactly this manner, I would say this is the story that adult Hermione tells her children someday. <laughs> yes, to Hogwarts and back, a wizard's tale says Jeff. Yes. Oh, and I actually have a very good question that relates to the Hobbit, uh, which I'll get to in due course. Yes, yes, yes. All right, I am running. I am running just a little long here. So let's get back into our dissection of the movie here. Um, yes, so we cut ahead to King's Cross and to Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Oh, though we cut ahead not before we get a cutaway to Voldemort actually killing Harry's parents. And this is the kind of thing that a movie can do that a book can't. I mean, we get the account in the book, but we don't inhabit that account the way that we inhabit the, the cutaway scene in the movie. And I genuinely want to ask this because I don't know. Do you guys find that the cutaway to Voldemort killing Harry's parents and, and trying to kill Harry himself, do you find that that works for you? Or would you have preferred to, you know, tight focus, just, just lock the camera on Hagrid's face as, as Robbie Coltrane gives us his version of that story as he does in the book? Which would you prefer? Because I'm honestly, I'm just caught between, just caught between the two. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We'll come back to that question in just a few minutes. So we skip over Harry's return to the Dursleys for the rest of the summer. We arrive at Platform 9 and 3 quarters. We meet the Weasleys in a great sequence. I, I love everything about this. And we arrive with great rapidity on board the Hogwarts Express. We are introduced in short order to Ron, to the idea of, of magical confectionery, and then to Hermione. And I said at the beginning of this session that... The producers could not have been more fortunate with the actors that they chose um, for all the the major children's roles. Um, but of all of them, Hermione is the most pitch perfect. When she shows up in the train car <laughs> looking for Neville's toad, it is an absolutely flawless depiction of the Hermione that I had in my head. Um, I absolutely adore it. It's it's so, so good. So we could continue to look at these tiny inconsistencies, these tiny questions that are raised, these tiny, these tiny surgical elisions that are made as we move through the text and the way in which they are never but never covered up. We have little things like Harry buying this vast amount of, of candy from the, uh, from the woman on the train in a way that 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 honors the actual event of the book while failing to understand the underlying motivation of the book, that this is about sharing and camaraderie, that this is about Harry finding, for the first time in his life, an actual friend. And it's also about, you know, we're doing all kinds of class-related things here. You know, in the book, even at that point, because of Harry's fantastic wealth, we are, how did, how did his parents get so wealthy? It's a crazy thing. Um, even at that point, though, we're looking at these ideas of, of the pure-blood wizarding families and, and, you know, the poor wizarding families and, of course, the muggle-born wizards, too. In the book, we do all kinds of interesting cultural stuff there. None of that is present in the movie. 
though we will later behave as though it was. We'll behave as though we understood it. Um, yes, good, good, good. There are two main examples of all the examples in the book. There are, there are two main parts of the book which are cut from the film which are completely inexplicable. The first of those is the account that we are given in the book when we arrive at Hogwarts of the houses, the whole idea of the house cup structure. When we arrive at Hogwarts in the movie, let us never mind how Neville's toad got to the steps of Hogwarts before any of the children did. I'll just skip right over that for now. We are given nothing. We're given the names of the houses, and then we go in and we do the whole sorting hat thing, but no additional context is provided. The huge, symbolic, thematic importance of the sorting hat, its enormous significance in the wizarding world, in Harry's experience, in our thematic understanding of this book, in our sense of, of what virtue genuinely is within the frame of Harry Potter, all of that stuff is entirely absent from the movie. We don't get any account of it at all. We don't even get a real account of the notion of the house cup. So when we start just handing out points and taking away points through the course of the rest of the film, I mean, you can infer, of course, that it's important. You can see that it matters from, from each individual episode, but none of it is given sufficient context. No story is actually built out. None of it works. Yeah. Yeah. Christina says, I would definitely prefer a tight focus, I believe, a tight focus on Harry's face as he himself imagines it. Not a fan of flashbacks. The mystery of an event would be much more powerful. Yes. Your lamp says that Trevor can apparate. <laughs> I like the notion of Trevor being the, uh, the most skilled wizard in the whole of the first year. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Good, good, good. All right. Um, Yes. And and so there are all... Every time I point out an inconsistency, I kind of feel bad for it because these are things which, knowing the book as I do, I actually enjoy in the moment. After Harry is sorted, after everyone has been sorted, Harry shoots Dumbledore a look and Dumbledore raises his glass. And there's a moment of connection between the two of them, a moment of intimacy between the two of them. And I like it. I look at that and I think, yeah, everything's going to be okay. All right, Team Dumbledore, this is great. And I know where everything is going, so I appreciate that moment. And it's only when I'm forced to look at this with this, this cynical, analytical gaze that I look at it and I think, well, what, what is that? Harry has never met Dumbledore. Dumbledore has never met Harry, effectively, not since he was a baby. Why would there be this moment of recognition, this moment of intimacy between them at this time? We're skipping over what matters. We're introducing the stuff that doesn't, and we're not giving sufficient context. Let's race through some of this. The encounter with the troll plays out much as it does in the book. The Quidditch match plays out much as it does in the book, though with a great deal more dynamism and physicality. I really like the depiction of Quidditch, actually, in the movie. I think I think they, uh, this, this generally outstanding production really exceeds itself um, with the depiction of the Quidditch match. It is... It is it is every bit as anarchic and profoundly dangerous as you might expect. Though, of course, we should note that there are a couple of slight modifications. The first is that it is Snape who disrupts 
uh, Quirrell's gaze on Harry more directly, rather than Hermione doing it herself in that, that great moment of eucatastrophe that we discussed earlier. And, of course, Harry has his moment of typical Poterian brilliance, you know? Even after the curse has been cancelled, even after the, the plans of Quirrell have been disrupted, Harry manages to perform this enormously daring act of, of heroism on the sports field and manages to recover the Golden Snitch on purpose rather than by accident, which is what happens in the book. So here we have Harry's exceptionalism outshining even Harry's exceptionalism uh, on the pages of the book. <laughs> it's, it's a remarkable thing, yeah. Sam says, the sorting hat talking out loud made me angry when I first saw it, and I understand that entirely. I have myself managed to come to a, 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 a peaceful, you know, uh, rapprochement with the sorting hat talking out loud, if only because the alternative would have been worse. <laughs> yeah, hearing it echo around, yeah. Ariane says, I always just assumed it was in the characters' heads. I think I think we can judge from the reaction shots that we get from the crowd as we move around Harry. Harry is the, the longest, uh, he has the longest period under the sorting hat. So while it is talking and we have this camera move around him and we see the reaction from those around him, I think that, I think we're supposed to infer that, that it is uh, actually happening in the room at the time. Yeah, yeah. Though even that, I guess you could... You could make an argument. You could make an argument that it's that it's internal, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um after the Christmas holidays we get this and this is, I mean, a prime example of the fact that we're not supporting these plot points properly, that this is just a you have to take it, you know, just on faith that this sequence of events fits as it does. At the Christmas holiday break, we get one brief beat of Hermione mentioning the restricted section in the library. The first reference that we have made to the library at all. Then the next beat is Harry getting his presents. We don't pay attention to the actual important presents that he gets. The flute from Hagrid, the sweater from Mrs. Weasley. These are the things that actually matter. Instead, we go straight to the invisibility cloak, and the very next beat we get is Harry visiting the restricted section in the library. We're not paying attention to his emotional growth, to his integration in this community. We're just getting beat, beat, beat. We don't get any mention um, of those other gifts or the developing friendship with Ron, or the character details that make it all work. We just keep moving onward. We then get the beat with Snape and Quirrell in the hall, and I actually like the way that some of this stuff is condensed, because, of course, one of my criticisms of the book is that they will get a new piece of information and then just sit on it for two months before they actually take meaningful action. So I like the way that it's compressed, or at least I like the way that our attention isn't drawn as fully to the chronology of events. We have that long, long time jump when Harry walks out into the snowy courtyard uh, and he releases his owl and it flies up and we get this wonderful swooping shot. And when it comes back, it is springtime and that's great. But that's a jump of, it must be a jump of four months, maybe even five months as we're moving out toward the final exams in June. Wow, the chronology of Harry Potter is not the uh, fault of the movie, at least. Um... So this is the most uh, this is the most important. We move through, I should say, too the uh, the um, the scene with the mirror of Arisad, and I said earlier that for me, at least, Harry seeing just his parents is less powerful than Harry seeing his parents and community. But 
I guess that's a that's a thematic kind of tonal ideal, and perhaps it would be more difficult to communicate the the you know ranks of of his family standing in the mirror um, rather than just his parents. But I think it's a missed opportunity personally. But there we are. We excise, and this is perhaps the most important the most important excision that is made, and and certainly the one which is supported the least. We excise the sequence with Harry and Hermione bringing Norbert to the astronomy tower. We replace it with a, a a huge, a disproportionate punishment for Harry and Ron and Hermione being present in Hagrid's hut. And of course, Malfoy gets his punishment too. We take Neville out of the Forbidden Forest sequence. We replace him with Ron, which we may as well, because for all the attention we're going to give to that side of the party, why not? Why not do that? But the problem here is that we're not understanding the real theme that drives that part of the book. Harry and Hermione get in trouble, and and Ron is laid up in the hospital, because they are trying to help Hagrid. They're not being punished for a selfish act. They're being punished for, essentially, a selfless act. We never really explore what the consequences would be if Hagrid were discovered with Norbert in his hut, but we're sure that they are serious. Instead, here, we know that Harry and Hermione have to be punished. They have to be given detention and they have to be sent out into the Forbidden Forest, excuse me, the Dark Forest. That has to happen, so we have to get from A to C, and if we can't include B, that is the taking of Norbert up to the Astronomy Tower, and, you know, you guys will remember, I'm sure, that is my least favorite part of the book. I do not care for that sequence at all. But you can't simply remove it and behave as though the structure around it remains unchanged. This is... This causes irreparable harm to Professor McGonagall's character in this movie. For me, at least, Minerva McGonagall, one of my favorite characters in the book, is horribly damaged by this. If the punishment for Hermione breaking the rules and and allegedly going off to face a troll by herself is ten points, or is, excuse me, is five points. Uh, Is it five points in the movie? Now I'm, for, now I'm forgetting exactly where I am. It is either five or ten points. I think it's five points. Uh, she loses five points for going off to face the troll and ending up in mortal danger, leveraging a 50-point penalty against each of these Gryffindor children for being out at Hagrid's hut. Hagrid, who is actually a member of the faculty. It seems ridiculous. We have to compensate for the fact that we're not doing the whole dragon adventure. And not doing the whole dragon adventure is completely fine. That is a fine choice. But if you're going to make that kind of cut, you have to support it. You have to justify it. You have to offer context for it. You are not properly telling your own complete version of this story. The trials, too, suffer from being somewhat decontextualized um, without the structure of the trials, without all six trials, you know, embodied, without the callbacks to our heroes' established skills, without the framing of the the faculty, the presence by proxy of each member of the faculty within the, the trial chambers, you know. Um, without that, they're visually impressive, but by this point... We are tumbling from event into event into event with no sense of a surrounding supporting structure. We're not getting a sense that we're moving towards something. I spent so much time talking about all of these these trials as being transitionary thresholds, and there's none of that contained within the the fiction of the, the, the movie narrative. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um... 
It is five. Good. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes. Um, Giggle Cutie says the social repercussions of the huge loss of points is not felt in the movie. It's not until Neville steps up to try and prevent our heroes from going down to the uh, down to the trial chambers, up to the third floor, and, and thence down through the trapdoor. And of course, it is only Neville's ongoing presence in the book that describes the arc there, you know? We don't care that Neville is standing up to Harry and Hermione and Ron in the movie because, well, why wouldn't he? We don't know him well enough to make any kind of judgment on that. Yeah. Yes, and ER Lamp pulls out on Twitter, it's unfair that Hermione's moment to shine, the potions, gets cut. Yes, instead we're repl- her her trial is now the Devil's Snare plant where she just remembers her spell from Herbology. It's not quite the same. Because what she's actually doing is not overcoming a trial as much as she is saving Ron from his own stupidity. It's nothing like as accomplished as Ron's trial. But note, too, we don't change the text at the end of the book here. Dumbledore still gets his line about, uh, about Hermione's cool logic. Well, it's not logic to disentangle the snare trap. It is simply remembering a spell. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so lastly, we get to our, our, our big showdown. We get to the Mirror of Erised. And I will say that the, they do something with the mirror that I actually rather enjoy. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about its implications. I'm not entirely sure. I feel like it should be given more thematic weight. The decision to have Voldemort re- address Harry reflected in the mirror, because of course he's on the back of Quirrell's head. Spoilers, I guess. Um, The decision to have Voldemort appear in the mirror and address Harry is a powerful one. Because we're talking about desire, and we're talking about power, and we're talking about all of these, these primal and evocative things. Things which are thematically very important to Harry Potter as a whole, and of course Harry as a character... So we're talking about that stuff, and the image of Voldemort's face in the mirror works for me, but I don't feel that it necessarily has sufficient weight. And I genuinely don't know how I feel about the the petrification uh, of, of Quirrell. I'm not sure how I feel about the turning to stone of him, though I do like the fact that he is unambiguously killed in that sequence, and it is Voldemort's essence that casts Harry into the darkness as he flees. Um, I think that works That works more effectively, but of course part of that, part of the reason that that works so well, despite being reframed so fully from the book, is that the movie is much more the Voldemort story. Um, the tonal shift between the boarding school adventure and this dark fantasy adventure is not as profound, or even one might argue present at all. Certainly, when we spend our time in the Dark Forest, it's 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 less otherworldly than the Forbidden Forest is in the book, I think. Um, it feels more of a piece. Uh, but of course, Privet Drive feels more of a piece. Privet Drive feels more like Hogwarts, and so does the Dark Forest. You know, we get much greater tonal shift in the book than we do on the screen. Yeah. Yes, all right. So that is is pretty much where I am. The the final closing moments of the movie, of course, reflect 
fairly well, the final closing moments of the book, and I do enjoy them. I do enjoy having Dumbledore there present in the infirmary, giving his talk much as he does in the pages of the book. I enjoy Hagrid saying farewell. I like very much the beat of Hagrid reminding Harry that Dudley won't know that he's not supposed to use magic over the holidays. All of that works. And I like the idea that we are... Well, that we are at least moving toward the restoration of, of Harry's mundane life for the summer. Um, in fact, let me pick up from there. Let's get into some questions. Th- those broadly are my thoughts on the movie adaptation. There are a number of tiny inconsistencies. There are a number of tiny choices that I wish they hadn't made. There are a number of tiny choices that I'm very glad that they did make. Overall, in production aspect, uh, when you think about the performances, when you think about, yes, certainly the music, the special effects sequences, I think it all hangs together beautifully. It simply fails in its most important duty, which is to tell its story. I stand by, unfortunately, the 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 judgment that if the movie works as a story, it is a weak and feeble thing next to the book. Um, and that's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate. That said, you know, at least if you know the book as well as we do, the movie can be very enjoyable. You know, you can you can skip over some of those problems. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to some of the Q&A. Do speak up if you have any questions about the whole book, uh, anything that we've discussed, if there's anything that you want some clarification about, if there's anything that you would like to ask the community, you can ask the community through me. I will, I will relay your questions and, uh, we'll do maybe half an hour of this and we'll just see, see where we go. But I have two questions here that came to me through email and the first comes from Andrew and it relates directly to the end of the book. So Andrew asked, you mentioned at the beginning of the seminar the connections between the beginning of HP and the beginning of The Hobbit. To me, it feels as though the ends are symmetrical too, e.g. both involve a return home, a return from the magical world. And I think that that's a really strong observation, Andrew. Um, Harry Potter points toward that symmetry. It kind of gestures toward it. We are heading in that direction when the book concludes. Um, whereas, of course, in The Hobbit, Bilbo returns home and he has to deal not just with his reintegration into his own <laughs> his own familiar society, but has to deal with the consequences of his absence. And we don't get that from, from Harry Potter, of course. We conclude a beat earlier than that. And that's okay. I don't think that's necessarily... I don't think that's necessarily a poor choice. Um, we do get the the line in the movie version that Harry doesn't feel as if he's going home when he leaves Hogwarts, which, again, I think is a fundamental misunderstanding of, of one of the more subtle aspects of Rowling's texts, but that's absolutely fine. Um, so, yes, while, while Harry Potter doesn't take it as far as it would need to in order to really cement that, that symmetrical, you know, approach to, to the otherworldly adventurous persona and the mundane muggle persona, you know, the, 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 uh, the Baggins and the Took sides of Bilbo's personality. Um, well, it doesn't quite get us to the point of reintegration in Harry Potter. Yes, absolutely. I think that is a fair and valid point. We're definitely moving in that direction. So good observation. I think I was thinking about this this morning. I think it might be possible to map many of the events of The Hobbit onto Harry Potter and vice versa. I think it would be possible to see a number of symmetries there. I don't think it's terribly close. I don't think that it's it's a it's a real developed analogy, and I certainly don't think that uh, that Rowling was cribbing from The Hobbit at all. In fact, 
if memory serves, she, she says that she never read The Hobbit until after she'd written uh, Harry Potter. And I certainly don't think that there's enough overlap to, to accuse anyone of, of, you know, cribbing off of anyone's work. Um, the thing that occurred to me, the thing that kind of uh, got me thinking was uh, that Harry's decision to... Um, or decision to Harry's removal from Gryffindor society uh, after the um, after the returning of of Norbert uh, or the surrendering up of Norbert into the care of, of Charlie's friends at the top of the astronomy tower when they get those points deducted and they they fall into infamy it's not unlike Bilbo being driven from the company of the dwarves you know um, because of his decision to keep the Arkenstone there are there are similarities there that's probably a seminar for a whole nother time <laughs> yes 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 all right let me see here what we have uh janine says i have maggie smith blindness every time she's on screen i clap and shout isn't she the best you know what i would not uh the problems with mcgonagall are not uh the, the fault of maggie smith i also appreciate dame maggie in everything she is wonderful <laughs> and <laughs> Jeff gives us a blooper reel from the house cup scene. Oprah shows up. You catastrophe and you catastrophe and you catastrophe. Badum tish. <laughs> I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Uh, Janine says, do you think there's any reflection of the world in which it was written? Any real world metaphors in this first book? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, well, the... I guess when you strip everything away, when you try and look at Harry Potter in its purest terms, when you look at it thematically uh, and, and you distill it down to its essence, Harry Potter is about, I would argue, three things. It is about love and it is about community and it is about death. Um, we get all kinds of echoes of those three things, large and small, rippling out through the first book and, of course, out through the subsequent books, too. We get all kinds of interesting associations and connections drawn between those things. Is there any reflection of the real world? I'm not sure that there's a direct analogy. I don't think that this book maps to a particular real-life experience more than it maps to all real-life experience, more than it maps to, you know, everyone struggling with this sense of displacement, you know? Everyone, and, and particularly, you know, the adolescents uh, among us, we struggle with the sense that we are not who we are supposed to be. We are not where we are supposed to be. We are not truly in the company of our peers and that things would be different, you know, that we are destined for greatness. And that's certainly true of Harry. Um, yeah. I'm not sure that there's, I'm not sure that there's a clean analogy, but I do think that one of the reasons for Harry Potter's enduring success, particularly it's striking, it's notable success with adults is that it speaks in a very sophisticated and mature way about these notions of love and of community and of death. It treats those primal and powerful ideas with a huge amount of respect. And it's a huge amount of respect which some imitators in the YA space have completely failed to match. You know, there are many... I don't want to say, you know, 
ripoffs <laughs> of Harry Potter. Many people have tried to do what J.K. Rowling did, and they have failed to understand that the reason she is so, or one of the reasons at least, that she is so universal, uh, universally beloved is that she writes with enormous emotional sophistication, that there is nothing childish about the way that she approaches these great topics and themes. Yeah. McGoogleQT asks on Twitter, because most film adaptations are weaker than books, do you all like to read first and then watch or enjoy the film first and then fill in the blanks with the book? Um, I'm sure people will, will jump out on Twitter and answer this. Uh, I generally prefer to read, though I'm usually more keen on finding a story's native medium, you know? Um... There are cases, few and far between, but there are cases where the adaptation is such that it manages to distill the essence of something. Perhaps the, the greatest example is the Game of Thrones TV show. I've read the Game of Thrones books. I'm almost, I'm, I am but one up to date, and I'm currently running a season behind on the TV show too, but that's more about my schedule than anything else. I think that the TV show version of Game of Thrones is superior to the books. It is a more full and focused and disciplined realization of George R. R. Martin's actual intent. This is not in the tiny detailed parts, not in the tiny mechanical cogs, but in its broad movements, in its thematic thrust. This is, I would argue, truer to his central vision than the books are. And I think that that's true from time to time. There are examples, but of course, that's television, and television's a different beast. Uh, usually I like complexity in my stories. I, I will generally prefer pretty much anything over the movie version of something, but one of the things that I have tried to become more adept at over the last few years, one of the things I have, one of the skills I have tried to train in myself over the last few years is appreciating adaptations for what they are and not having that knee-jerk reaction of, well, they've ruined my thing now. You know, when you look at an adaptation, be it Game of Thrones, be it Outlander, be it, I don't know, Star Wars or whatever, you look at an adaptation and it isn't what you want it to be and you feel as though something has been taken away from you. You feel as though something has been has been taken in a very pure and emotive sense. And I've tried over the last few years to, to really struggle against that and to understand that Adaptations can serve different purposes. Adaptations can do different things. I love both the uh, graphic novel series of Scott Pilgrim, uh, written by Brian Lee O'Malley, and I also love the movie version of that story, uh, directed by Edgar Wright. Those are two very different things. They, they overlap, certainly, but they exist in different spaces with different intents, and, interestingly in that case, different endings. The ending to the movie was written before the graphic novel had finished. So they do different things in different directions with different purposes, and I manage to love both of them. So try and, as far as possible, differentiate adaptation as much as you can. You will be a happier person for it, is what it comes down to. You, know, you, will, in, you will be able to enjoy the things that you love and not be bothered by the things that you don't love to a much greater degree. And that's really the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim of any kind of enjoyment is the enjoyment itself, I think. You know. Yes, Beth says that she's book first. Yes. Liz says that she's book first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Good, good, good. All right, let's turn. We'll take a look here in the YouTube chat. Oh, and Robbie says that she would add class. 
Yes, class in the sense of community. Yes. Um, the, when, I, when I say community, I don't mean a particular community. I mean the communities, the multiple communities of which we are all a part. You know, Harry is simultaneously, you know, um, he is special unto himself. He is also a member of this power trio. He is also Gryffindor. He is also, you know, Hogwarts in particular. He's, he's, you know, the Dumbledore army. He is the wizard world. He also has one foot in the muggle world, which makes him interesting to people like Ron, at least in the beginning of the book. So when I say the, the, the community as a great theme, I'm talking about all the multiple communities and the way in which they mesh and interact. And certainly, it's surprising to me going back that we don't have more exploration of this idea of purebloods and mudbloods in the first book. That's something that we'll get into much more powerfully in the second book and, and subsequent titles, you know, where again, it's taken from one of these very simple, um, one of these very simple means of defining who we are and who we are not in much the same way as the houses of Hogwarts stop being simple delineations and become something much more important about the kind of person you are as we move forward into the subsequent books. So this distinction about class and about heritage and about family and about pedigree, these distinctions stop being trivial distinctions because they become much more important. They become emblematic of a much greater social division. And it's, it's, it's vibrant and it's powerful stuff. But yes, certainly the class system is a fundamental part and is one of the, one of the uniquely British things that J.K. Rowling has taken to this. I've, I've often speculated about how Harry Potter would work if it had been written by an American. And there are so many fundamental points of divergence. The, the worldview is so filtered through that British experience, um, that I have real trouble thinking about it, you know what the genuine and authentic, you know, American Harry Potter would be. Not a, not a, a parodic or, or, or caricatured version, but an actual, a version of Harry Potter that reflects true American life and American values, American social values and social understandings in the same way that the British Harry Potter reflects British social values and social understandings. Um, I've often thought about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Good, good, good. All right, let me see here what else we have. Um, yeah, we're really coming down. Uh, we're coming down generally on the side of books first, then movies and other adaptations. But Ariane says, usually when given the chance, I like to watch first. I find I enjoy the movie better when I'm not comparing and picking it apart. So movie, book, then movie again to compare. That is the story wonk approach, Ariane. I love that. Good, good, good. All right, I had another email question from Ginny. Um, presumably not of the Weasleys, but uh, a Ginny nonetheless. And Ginny writes, All the names in Harry Potter stand out, and I love J.K.R. for coming up with them. But the theme I never understood was when Dumbles told Harry to use Voldemort's real name because, quote, fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Why is that? And I think that's a really interesting question. Certainly, there is an attention paid to names within the pages of Harry Potter, not just the names that are given, not just these wonderful, brilliant, evocative, mellifluous, functional names. You know, um, uh, Snape has... has <laughs> Snape is a wonderful word. It, it is in and of itself perfectly emblematic of who that character is. You know, we've talked before about Dumbledore and about the, the, the bumbling, you know, dumbling kind of characteristics of that name and how 
accurate or inaccurate they may be. And we see, too, the use of names both as markers. Draco Malfoy. Draco Malfoy is never going to be a good guy. I hate to break it to you. When you are born Draco Malfoy, you're stuck. That's it. You're done. And also the way that names are wielded, the way that they are used, the way that uh, uh, McGonagall in particular will address these students in a very proper and formal way, in a proper and formal way that is that is emblematic of the amount of respect that she shows them. For example, Snape refers to Harry most often as Potter. McGonagall refers to Harry as Mr. Potter. And that distinction is all the world. That distinction is the most important one that you can make. And we talked, too, about how Hermione's name changes, how for the first third of the book she is resolutely, every time she's mentioned, Hermione Granger. But then, when we go through the troll experience at Halloween, and she becomes a part of the group, she actually becomes a person rather than just a label, she becomes just Hermione. And we wield full names only to great effect, only under very particular circumstances, in the way that when you're in trouble, your mother will call you by your full name. You know, we do that from time to time uh, later in the book. But generally speaking, you know, Harry and Ron and Hermione are, are owned by their first name. They are, they inhabit those first names in a very primal way. And the others, you know, we still get full names. We still get Neville Longbottom all the way through the book. We still get Draco Malfoy all the way through the book. The other children are full names, whereas the professors, of course, are Professor So-and-so, Professor Here and There, except Snape, who is usually just Snape. And Harry's corrected, I want to say three times? I want to say Harry is corrected three times, once by Hagrid, once by McGonagall, and once by Dumbledore, is that right? He's, he's reminded that Professor Snape has a title and isn't just a surname? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a recognition of how important names are, and certainly the effort that is put into them. But we address names in a very direct way. Hagrid is extremely, you know, careful about his use of Voldemort's name. He doesn't want to write Voldemort's name um, because he says that he can't spell it. Uh, and I, I'm skeptical about that. I'm skeptical if that is, in fact, the reason that Hagrid won't write Voldemort's name. What is the power of names? In, traditionally, in fairy stories, in the, the very oldest tradition of fairy stories, names embody and give power. To know something's name is to at least possess an understanding of that thing. You know, it isn't always a, a magical kind of, of aspect. If you know the name of a thing, then you understand in a very true sense what that thing is. And the knowledge of a thing, of course, gives power over a thing. In other later fairy stories, we would see the knowledge of a name become fully manifested as, you know, actual dominion over a thing. There are all kinds of fairy stories. Oh, um, Ursula K. Le Guin in the Earthsea series uses this to great effect. Everybody in that universe goes by a fake name. Because to know something's true name is to have dominion over it. That's a fundamental element of that world. And while Harry Potter doesn't seem to go quite so far down that road, I think it's important. I think on the one hand, there is a very mundane explanation, which is the name that you give to something and the name that you use to describe something really does reinforce your relationship with that thing. 
There is a sense, not a magical sense, not an actual arcane sense, but a, a human psychological sense that every time you say, he who must not be named, you are giving him power. You are, in a psychological sense, you know, crediting him with an authority, with a specialness, with a uniquity that can only work against you in due course. And I think that on the one hand, Dumbledore is absolutely right in saying, don't give him that extra credit. Don't give him that extra ability, you know? Call him by his name because that's what he is. And when you call him Voldemort, you are reminded that he is just a person. He is, or, or a being, a creature, you know? He is not a universal force. He is nothing that need be feared more than specifically he need be feared. On the other hand, of course, in future books, and I guess no spoilers, in future books we will discover that there is, in fact, a very good reason why you shouldn't use Voldemort's name. Why you shouldn't, you know, <laughs> refer to him in those terms. Because it gives him a very real and concrete ability. So what is Dumbledore saying at the end of the book? And is it connected with any of the greater themes that we've discussed? Is there a hidden theme here? that we didn't pull out during our analysis of this book. And I'm not sure that there is. I'm not sure that there is a... I'm not sure that there is a nominative theme in the pages of Harry Potter, but I do think that one of the themes of Harry Potter is about discovering who you are. One of the themes particularly of the adolescent story, of the, of the boarding school adventure story, is this coming-of-age tale, this discovery of who you are. And of course, we're seeing this through Harry's eyes as he transits into another world, as he is actually told, oh, no, no, this is who you are. You're a wizard, Harry. You know, he finds himself and is also given himself through the course of the book. And names are very important in that regard. So maybe more than there being a a real theme of, you know, nominative power in Harry Potter. What we're actually seeing is the use of names being reflective of a, a central identity. You know, the theme of, of knowing who you are, controlling who you are, choosing who you are, and I guess, to a certain degree at least, choosing who other people get to be to you? What do you guys think? What do you think there? Oh, Robbie's trying to link to uh, Dumbledore's quote about words from Deathly Hallows. Yes, yes, yes. That's a, that's a long way in the future. <laughs> yes. Ariane says, Fear of the name emphasizes the importance of calling a thing what it is. Death versus passed on, etc. It's a criticism of the use of euphemism. Yes, inasmuch as shrouding something in euphemism dulls its point. Right? This is this is one of the this is one of the marks of the coming of age story is the putting away of childish things, the putting away of euphemism and the understanding of the exact nature of the world. And as we embrace death and love and friendship and community, as we learn who we are and who these people who surround us are and what they want and why we fight, as we learn all of these things, part of that process involves, part of that process necessitates the putting away of euphemism. So you may well be right that there's, that there is a, a kind of a, a blunt specificity in using someone's name. That more than just, you know, allowing him power, allowing him headspace, allowing him to occupy a certain space or, or, or adopt a certain persona, far more than that, using his specific name 
allows you to still see clearly. It allows you to to speak in terms of of you know truth values rather than rather than this this shrouding of yes yeah, superstition and 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 I don't know a concession here, yeah. Liz says, oh, this is so interesting. Here in Oklahoma, they had to start saying tornado emergency because we heard warning so much that it had lost its sense of danger. That's fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Liz also asks, doesn't McGonagall say Malfoy instead of Mr. Malfoy, or is that just the movies? Well, now I have to go and read the book again, don't I? (laughs) Now I have to go and search it out. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and Janine raises a point about um, names that are mundane, um, names being mundane, you know, the names that we choose. Yes, certainly. I don't want to get too much into that. We will certainly talk about names. Names become vitally important in Chamber of Secrets uh, for obvious reasons, so we will talk about that uh, when we return next year to look at Chamber of Secrets. Yes. Good, good, good. All right, I'm scrolling back down now just to make sure that I didn't miss anything wonderful. (laughs) yeah good Kay says that she can't think of long-standing traditions in the u.s that would translate that way no i think you're right i think that that the american version of harry potter would be much less about the established hierarchies and the the given way of doing things than it would be about those qualities which are uniquely american you know the the pursuit of of life and liberty you know the the ability to the ability to define oneself uh, and pursue one's own to pursue one's own happiness in a way that is all about self-determination. Certainly there was an emphasis placed on self-determination in American culture versus British culture. Yeah. Yeah, good. And I say culture, you know, as if I'm talking for everyone on both sides of the Atlantic. I am of course talking about, you know, the 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 broadest and most kind of uh the, the softest kind of unified culture. You know, when you when you blur the lines to the degree that there is a thing that you can point at that is that is British and there is a thing that you can point at that is American and you have to blur the lines a great deal in order to do so. So when you do and you end up with that oatmeal colored thing that represents this given trait or quality, then that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Janine asks, when they inevitably analyze this series in 50 years, what will it say about the 2000s? That is a fascinating question. I think my my immediate instinct is to say very little, is to say very, very little. I don't think it's going to tell anyone a great deal about the 2000s because Harry Potter is very disinterested in the 2000s. It is, it is primarily interested in a early 20th century sense of boarding school adventures and in a far more important and functional way a antiquarian sense of the past you know this 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 wizardly preoccupation with medievalism um so we're going to be able to look at harry potter as a relic of its time only in the sense that it shows the way that we looked at other time frames you know through that lens yeah yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a really interesting question. I will be thinking about that question, Janine, long after this this seminar is done. Yes. Good, good, good. All right. And I think on that note, I think we're ready to conclude. You guys, 
by all means, get in touch with me. If you have thoughts and ruminations, you know, sometimes if I get a question that is, that is very specific or a question that is, is, um, particularly arcane, then I will oftentimes just answer it by email because, um, I, 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 you know, there are long and rambling discussions that I could, I could indulge in here in these live seminars, but, uh, you know, we all still have other things to do, unfortunately. All right, I'm just concluding here. I'm making sure that I am up to date. This is all wonderful. You guys have been wonderful. Thank you so much for accompanying me through this entire seminar run, whether you are here in the United States or you are you are there in Europe or you are on the other side of the world, as so many of you, a surprising number of you are. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. It has been an absolute blast going through this book and looking at it in such fine detail. I have, over the course of the last eight weeks, the last nine sessions, I think really developed an even deeper appreciation of this text. You know, whenever I bring a book up to discuss during one of these seminars, all the books that end up on the shortlist are books about which I feel I have interesting things to say, or I hope that I have interesting things to say. You know, I bring up books for the shortlist that, that I think will reward a deeper look that, that will yield their secrets to this kind of analysis. And while I expected Harry Potter to be responsive in exactly that way, while I, while I thought that there were riches there to be mined and plundered through this kind of analytical excursion, I was surprised over the course of the last two months exactly how much I got from this book and how much I warmed to it. This is a genuinely great book. It, it is... I think my personal tastes are going to still pull me toward the later books in the series. And I think it's certainly true that Rowling becomes much more skilled. She is capable of much more clearly expressing her true intent. You need to look between the lines at a lot of points in Harry Potter to see what's really moving, the mechanism under the surface, because some of the surface detail is cluttered and some of it's clouded and some of it is so spare. There are so few details in certain parts of this book that it's difficult to keep track of exactly what's happening and exactly what we are supposed to be paying attention to. But all of that aside, this entire process, this seminar process has, for me at least, cemented Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone as being one of the all-time greats, as, a, as an examination of, of childhood, of belonging, of community, of love and friendship, and yes, of death as an examination of exceptionalism, albeit, you know, a heavy-handed examination of exceptionalism, but exactly the kind of examination of exceptionalism that you would expect from a children's book. You know, the treatment of exceptionalism seems a little, a little, um, <laughs> a little cartoonish to these jaded adult eyes, but I can absolutely see how it works for a nine-year-old, a ten-year-old, a fifteen-year-old reading this book for the first time. I've understood, I think, over the course of the last two months, not just that Harry Potter is an interesting book, but also that it is genuinely, I think, a great book. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this exploration, and I've thoroughly enjoyed every week being driven on to greater analysis, to greater thought, to greater subtlety, to greater nuance by you guys. This response has been so much uh, more detailed and considered and thoughtful and precise than I had expected. You know, even expecting great and wonderful things from all of you, as I always do, it has been particularly acute, um, and it's been enormously rewarding, and I hope that you guys have enjoyed it too. And what is so much fun about this whole thing is that, you know, the Dear Mr. Potter feed will just be there, and people will find this in six months and email me about it, and then a year from now we will reconvene 
and look at the Chamber of Secrets. I can't wait to get to it. We're starting up Pride and Prejudice in a few short weeks. But guys, that is it for Dear Mr. Potter. That is it for this round of the Story Wonk Seminar. Thank you all so much, so much for your time, for your attention, for your kindness, for your correspondence. It has been a blast. It has been, as always, a privilege. And I will see you all very soon. Take care and goodbye. Thank you.